This morning's title is uh, Living by a Living Hope, and we'll be in 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1 this morning. Now, if you guys um, remember, Peter began this letter by singing the praises of God who had given such a great salvation to the Christians. In this next section we're about to read, he now reflects on the salvation, on this salvation with an exhortation on how to live in a society, in a society, in society as Christians who are oppressed and excluded. Um, so in a series of reflections on, uh, on the difference salvation should make in a believer's life, he will exhort his readers in these four areas. He will exhort them or us to hope because of our salvation. He will exhort us to holiness as obedient children. He will exhort us to fear God in light of our new relationship with him. And he will exhort us to love one another as purified born-again believers. So as we go through this rest of this chapter this morning, Peter words, Peter's words will encourage you to stand firm in the hope of your salvation as an obedient child of God in an unbelieving society. These verses thus will challenge you to be different in a polluted world in a polluted society, without feeling the need to flee out to the desert, to join a desert commune, or to join a religious monastery. And with that, before we begin reading, let's, um, let's ask the Lord to speak to us this morning through his word. Heavenly Father, um, it is great and so good to be here, that you've allowed all of us to, to come together um, to share in this time of, of, of studying your word. Lord, you've prepared and planned this day from eternity past, and you have us all here for a purpose and a reason. Lord, and may we just search you and seek right now what that, that purpose is, Lord. So now as we open up your word, speak to us mightily speak to us powerfully lord so that the words that we're about to read may impact our lives so that it can affect some change in our lives lord change that we need lord may our perception our outlook in life change lord so that we will be in this world as your children so we may be known as your children so that we may be in this world, but not of this world. Fill this room with your Holy Spirit now, Lord. Soften hearts, soften minds, Lord. Let us hear from you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, 1 Peter chapter 1. And we are going to be picking up what we left off last week, and that is in verse 13. Verse 13, there it says, Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at, that rev at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, 
do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. But as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. I'm going to stop there and break down what, Paul, what Peter is saying there. Beginning with the word therefore, which refers to the great benefits of salvation he had just mentioned in verses 3 to 12, Peter now begins to explain how those blessings ought to make um, us as his readers different in how they live their lives. He begins to do this with these first four, verse, first four verses with two exhortations. In verse 13, Peter exhorts believers to hope by living their present lives with an expectation of seeing Jesus Christ. He informs them that if their present actions and decisions are to be governed by this future hope, they first must think differently. The idea behind the phrase, minds ready for action, is to have a mind that is strong, composed, cool, and ready for action. A mind unimpeded, unimpeded by the distraction of human fear or persecution. This state of mental preparedness is further encouraged by the words, be sober-minded. Unlike drunks who have no control over themselves or their bodies, Peter's encouragement is for believers to be mentally poised, stable, and self-controlled. Having a disciplined mind will then lead to having an optimistic mind, a mind motivated by a confident expectation of the grace that will be given to them when Jesus Christ comes back to earth. You see, Peter wants Christians to maintain a loose grip on this world and a tight grip on the world to come. So after exhorting them to hope by thinking differently in verse 14, he begins to exhort them to holiness by acting differently. As obedient children, he says, don't be conformed but to the desires of your former ignorance. Assuming that his readers are saved and their lives are not characterized by obedience to their heavenly father, Peter informs them on proper conduct. He begins again by urging them not to indulge in the sins which characterized them in their former life. Peter recognized that in the Christian life, sinful desires will still beckon believers and tempt them to depart from God. Yet, he also implies that he agreed with Paul in Romans chapter 6 and Galatians chapter 5 that the Holy Spirit's regenerating work is most powerful than those desires and that it's possible for Christians to have a significant measure of victory over them. So he says in verse 15, instead of capitulating to those evil desires, Believers should produce, reproduce the holy character of the one who called us. 
since God is holy in all his ways. And if it's a believer's desire to be like him, then they will strive to conduct themselves in a manner that reflects his holiness. Now, the main idea behind holiness isn't moral purity, but it's the idea of being separate. And this is what God is by his essential nature and character. God is therefore calling his children to share in his separateness by seeking the things that break his heart and not ha or having, have nothing to do with them separating ourselves from them. The point is this. Holiness is not so much something we possess as it is something that possesses us. Now, if anyone has any doubts about what he just said, Peter reaches back into the Old Testament for proof that God expects his people to be like himself. In Leviticus 11.44, the Lord said, be holy because I am holy. And so, if he were a lawyer in a courtroom, this is where Peter would just drop the mic and give his close or give his closing ar argument and just drop the mic. This is his close, this is what he's saying. This, I'm saying this, and if you don't believe me, if you don't, you know, want to trust my word, then let me pull out from the Old Testament and show you where it says that we ought to be holy like our Father. These first two exhortations from Peter ought to encourage you. Ought to encourage you to maintain a holy walk in this fallen world. If you are a born-again Christian, holy living isn't isolating yourself from the outside world. It's insulating yourself from being corrupted by the world. This is what Jesus meant when he prayed in John 17, verses 15 and 16, I am not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. You see, as I mentioned, we are to be in the world, but not of the world. It's important then that you realize that even though we're living in a wicked world filled with numerous, numerous trials and temptations, God gives us the ability to live by a higher standard. He does this through the Holy Spirit in us, which guides us to walk in holiness and helps us to stay focused beyond our present circumstances. Now, as I mentioned earlier, living by holiness begins by thinking, by being different in the way you think. This means getting rid of loose and sloppy thinking by controlling what you think about and the decisions you make. Paul writes in Colossians 3.2, Set your minds on the things above, not on earthly things. John Corson put it this way, You cannot change your heart but you can change your mind. God can change your heart. He won't change your mind, but if you choose to change your mind, God will change your heart. Having a disciplined mind will, will also require effort, concentration, 
and intentionality. The most effective way to do this is by keeping the mind free of anything that will dull it. And good examples of this are drugs and alcohol. It's keeping your mind sober, keeping it alert, keeping it you know, ready for action. You know, if you're going to do a serious work, a serious job, you're not going to go completely, you know, unable to perform your task. You know, you're going to be as sober and as alert as possible as, and concentrate with all your might and with all your, all your effort on that task. So again, this is what the Lord is telling us here. To have a disciplined mind, a sober mind. Peter will say later in chapter 5, verse 8, why being mentally alert is important. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling, prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. The result of a spiritual mindset is that you'll experience, the, or experience God's grace in your life. Yes, we'll experience, when, we'll experience grace when we see Jesus Christ face to face. But we can also experience grace today as we look to Him to return. As you do, your faith will be strengthened and your hope will shine during dark days. You see, the stars in the sky can only shine, can only be shine and be seen at night. Thinking, thinking differently will eventually lead to you to acting differently. A disciplined and sober mind and fixed on the hope of Christ's return will help you to live a life of obedience. In Romans 12, 2, Paul said this, Do not be conformed by this age, by this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is good, pleasing, and, the, and perfect will of God. So you see, holiness starts in the mind and leads to conforming to Christ's holiness rather than to the lusts of the world. As a child of God, you became a reflection of his nature and character at the moment of your conversion. And as it continue, and this continues as you live in obedience throughout your life. Therefore, as pilgrims and strangers in this world, we're to be different in the way we think and act so that His holiness can be seen through us. Now I want, now I want to move to the Peter's third exhortation. So let's pick up in verse 17. But if you appeal to the Father who judges impartially according to each one's work, you are to conduct yourselves in reverence during your time living as strangers. For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your fathers, 
not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for you. Through him, you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. In verses 17 through, 20, through 21, Peter gives his third exhortation to live in the fear of God. In verse 17, Peter begins with the foundation for living in the fear of God, then exhorts them to live that way. What Peter is conveying in, that, in verse 17 is simply this. If believers call, call as Father the one who judges indiscriminately, penetratingly, and absolutely honestly, then they better live in fear of Him. For God is altogether holy and will judge justly. Now the fear he's talking about here isn't a fear that one gets when they're in terror, when they're scared, when they're, you know, like when you're, it looks like you're about to fall off a building or when you're flying. It's not like a phobia type of fear. Rather, it's a respectful fear that grows stronger as a, as a believer matures in faith. For example, a confident driver who possesses, who possesses a healthy fear of an accident will take measures to avoid, do anything, to avoid doing anything um, foolish or dumb. They're going to take precautions. They're going to pay attention to the lights. They're going to pay attention to the, to the signs. You know, they're going to be aware and alert. Now, in view of the fact that the father lovingly disciplines his children and will judge their works in the future, believers ought to cultivate an attitude of godly fear. And as his beautiful, holy, as, as, and as his beautiful holiness or holy love checks our thoughts and actions, it will drive us to have a healthy fear and, and ha have a healthy fear and awe of him as strangers in this hostile world. Now, if you're currently in the midst of a hard trial, there are two roads before you. Imagine being in a fork of, in the road. And you have two roads before you that you must choose to go down. Run, one road is that of obedience that eventually leads to unspeakable joy. The other road is of disobedience that, that leads to sin and heartbreak. I would urge you to take that first road because life is too short to waste it in disobedience. Therefore, while you're living, pass the time in fear, not fear of the Father, but fear of disappointing Him and the repercussions of your sin. This is godly fear, a sober reverence for the Father. In verses 18 through 21, 
Peter reflects again on the foundation for living in that fear. However, this time, as it relates to the nature of a believer's redemption, before your conversion, you were like everybody else. Your talk and walk were as empty and trivial as everyone else around you. Peter describes those unconverted days as an empty way of life inherited from your fathers. But you were ransomed from that futile existence and rescued from the slavery of world conformity by a tremendous transaction. An infinite ransom was paid, but not by, by perishable things like silver or gold. Rather, he says in verse 19, it was paid with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. Peter here is speaking of Jesus' inward and outward sinless nature, sinless character. See, if he weren't absolutely perfect and sinless, he wouldn't have been qualified to be our Redeemer. But because he never sinned, because he was perfect, he was qualified. As a witness of Jesus' suffering, Peter is, remind, is reminding his readers of an Old Testament teeter, teaching that is just as important today as it was back then. This, te this teaching is known as the doctrine of substitution, which teaches that an innocent victim would give his life for the, for the guilty. This doctrine begins in Genesis chapter 3 when God killed animals to clothe Adam and Eve. It continued at the first Passover prior to the Exodus and was exemplified when God provided Abraham a sacrificial ram instead of his son Isaac. And finally ended when Jesus said, it is finished and then died on the cross. See, a perfect, innocent Jesus gave his life for us, imperfect, guilty sinners. The unfortunate situation for us humans is that our moral offense, sinfulness, and bondage, and bondage to that vis is, is our bondage to that vicious, vicious condition. Fortunately, though, because of God's love, the price pray, paid to free us from that condition was the sacrificial death of His Son. As a result, those of you who trust and believe in Him are now back in the ownership as, as His servants, free from sin and death. Peter then makes it clear that Jesus' death was no afterthought on God's part, nor was it an accident. He was destined to die for humanity before the foundation of the world, before the world, before time began, before the world was even created. 
However, this plan, including salvation for mankind, wasn't put into effect until Jesus appeared, died, rose from the dead, and returned to heaven. Now, loyalty to the Lord is further demanded by the fact that it's through Him we come to believe God. He is the one who has revealed the, Father, the Father's heart to us. As W.T.P. Wollstone says, It is not by creation, nor providence, nor law that man knows God, but by Christ. The Father indicated His complete satisfaction with Christ's, with Christ's redeeming work by raising Him from the dead and honoring Him with the highest place of glory in heaven. The result of this eternal plan is that our faith and hope are in God. Friends, God al alone, God al it's in God alone, not in anything else that we live and have purpose. There's no other solid basis for hope in hurtful times than the fact that Christ himself took it all on himself and rose victorious. And now he's sitting at the right hand of the Father, ready to lead us to victory too. The holy life that God called you to live is a life in which you trust God's eternal promises. And it's a life that prizes God above everything else. Therefore, we should be grateful to God for our new family. And it should move us to have a reverent fear of Him. Furthermore, when you and I meditate on the sacrifice of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ for us, it ought to inspire us to want to obey God and live in holiness for His glory. When a young lady, Frances Riley Havergal, saw a picture of a crucified Christ with the caption under it, I did this for thee, what hast thou done for me? Quickly she wrote a poem but was dissatisfied with it and threw it into the fireplace. The paper came out unharmed. Later, at her father's suggestion, she published the poem, and today it's sung in many traditional churches, in many um, congregational churches. And those words were, I gave my life for thee, my precious blood I shed, that thou might ransomed be and quickened from the dead, I gave, I gave my life for thee. What hast thou given for me? Let's now move on to Peter's last exhortation. First Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Since you have purified yourselves by your obedience to the truth, so that you show sincere brotherly love for one another, from a pure heart, love one another constantly. Because you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and its glory like flower of the grass. 
like a flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this word is the gospel that was proclaimed to you. In these final verses of chapter 1, Paul gives his fourth exhortation. Love one another. This exhortation is rooted in the change that occurs during and after conversion. Peter first describes his new birth since you have purified yourselves. Now we understand, of course, that it's God who purifies our souls when we're saved. But in this figure of speech, those of us who experience purification are said to have attained it when we placed our faith and trust in Jesus. When this happens, the words God spoke in Jeremiah 33.8 are fulfilled. I will purify them from all the iniquity they've committed against me. And I will forgive all their iniquities they've committed against me, rebelling against me. Now the means employed in this purification is obedience to the truth. This happened when you responded to God by submitting to the truth of the gospel, saying, yes, this makes sense. You know, the words of Jesus, you know, I, I understand it. it makes, I, I, I get it, and I want to obey it. I want to do what it says. Or it says that he died for me, and I, and I believe it. And he says he, he rose again, and I believe it. And it tells me what I, ought to, what I need to do to be saved. And it's doing it. It's submitting to that. It's being obedient to the truth. The result of obeying the truth is a sincere brotherly love for one another. Sisterly love for one another. Brotherly and sisterly love for one another. This is one of the goals of our new birth. To genuinely love all our fellow Christians. John echoed, echoed Peter's words here when he said in 1 John 4, 7, let us love one another because love is from God. And everyone who love, loves has been born of God and knows God. Since love is the goal of our conversion, it should come to no surprise that Peter would follow it up with a command to love one another constantly from a pure heart. This kind of love should be warm, wholehearted, with all our strength, earnest, unceasing, and lastly, pure. Our Lord and Savior gave us this command in John 13, 34 through 45, or 34 and 35. I give you a new command. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another.
the command to love is now explained in verse 23. Because you have been born again. This new birth is not brought about by a perishable seed. In other words, it's not produced in the same way as a physical birth. Now let me explain what I mean. Human life is brought into being by means of a seed that must obey the physical laws of decay and death. As a result, the physical life is the physical life that's produced is no different than the one than that of the prior perishable seed that it came from. However, Peter goes on to say that a believer's new birth came about by means of an imperishable seed, a seed planted in us by the living God who is eternal and exists outside the natural laws of this earth, thus making it a seed that will never die or ever decay. This imperishable seed is an illustration describing the moment a person is born again and God's Spirit makes his home in the new believer. So because it, is, it was eternally effective, this imperishable seed gives Christians an ultimate foundation for loving one another deeply. Now, he continues to explain our spiritual regeneration is brought about through the living and enduring Word of God. As unbelievers hear or read the Bible and believe what it says, these three C's occur. They're convicted of their sins. They're convinced that Christ is the sole and sufficient Savior and are converted to God. Convicted, convinced, and converted. Those three seeds, those three C's are essential because outside the, outside the incorruptible Word of God, salvation is unattainable. Peter then once again pulls a passage from the Old Testament book of Isaiah to point out a parable about humanity and the natural world. All human life is temporal as grass, and physical beauty is as short-lived as the flowers of the grass. As time passes, all grass withers and makes the flower fall until eventually both dry up and die. But, he continues to quote, the word of the Lord endures forever. Peter is making the point that the seed of God's word that was planted in you is eternal and will continually grow to give you an eternal, an eternal existence. This, again, this effective seed was planted in you when you heard the gospel preached. And after hearing it, you accepted it, believed it, 
and obeyed it. Now to summarize Peter's passage here, Peter's passage here of four exhortations contains strong pillars in which we can construct Christian ethics. Within these verses, he provides us with at least three foundations for determining whether an action is right or wrong. So again, ask yourself these questions whenever you make, whenever you make a decision. Firstly, does it conform to the character of God? Secondly, is the natural outcome of a life that is benefited from the salvation, is this, I'm sorry, let me repeat this. Secondly, is, is this, is it a natural outcome of a life that is benefited from the salvation of God? And thirdly, will it stand up to God's scrutiny in that final day when he ushers us in to his glorious presence? In other words, what will he say when you stand before him about what you did or what that decision was? Gonna, you know, it's gonna, you're going to stand before him and you're not going to be able to hide it from him. And you're gonna, he's going gonna to judge you on which road you decided to take. And you've got to think about that. You've got to think about those, again, those questions before you make that. It's, again, having that controlled mind, being alert, thinking, you know, we teach our kids since they were small, since they've been small, to think before they act. And as Christians, we need to do the same thing. We need to stop and, and take a minute to think. And, as we and, and the more we do that, the more we exercise discipline, the easier, again, it will become as we make daily choices and decisions. Maybe at one time it was really easy for you to flip, up that, flip off that driver that cut you off. But as you continue to discipline your mind, as you continue to live in obedience, yeah, you're going to say it's not worth it. Uh, you know, what am I accomplishing? What's the point? It's just, you know, he, he probably doesn't even know I'm flipping him off. You know. Again, it's thinking, thinking about your actions, your decisions. Now, if I, if we were to go a little deeper into, if we were to dig deeper into this passage, into the second half of chapter one, this is what we'll discover. Again, this is, I hope this is clear for all of you. Peter is exhorting us as believers to work out our salvation by building a life of ethics that is rooted in the salvation that God has given us. A salvation based in the holy and living character of God. Ethics, then, is part of theology. Theology means the study of God and God's relation to the world. Now, keep that in mind. So, the ethical standards you maintain 
and the decisions you make that come from those standards are logical extensions of that theology of what you believe about God. Therefore, if you don't have a solid theology that reflects on the true character and actions of God, there isn't a strong foundation for ethics. And without a solid found uh, without a solid theological foundation your ethical standards will never be firm and will likely shift or fall at the pressure of cultural change therefore as i close having a strong foundation is essential in the christian faith and is laid when you place when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verses 47 through 48, I will show you what someone is like who comes to me, hears my words, and acts on them. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock when the flood came, the river crashed against that house and couldn't shake it because it was well built. If this foundation has never been laid, it, it can be. It can be by just coming to Christ, coming to the cross, admitting again that you're a sinner that you're not perfect, that you're not God, getting rid of that pride, coming again to the Lord, broken and humble, knowing again the reality of your situation. Without Him, you are separated, you are lost, and your destiny is eternal damnation, it's eternal suffering. And that's not what God wants for you. That's not what He created you for. He didn't create you for, to be separated forever. He didn't create you to suffer eternally. He created you to have a relationship with Him. To be united. But in order for that to happen, Reconciliation needs to take place. You need to, again, as I mentioned, come to Him admitting you're a sinner, believing that He died, that God sent His Son to die for you, receiving that forgiveness, believing that Jesus rose from the grave three days after he died and that now he's sitting at the right hand of God. So as I mentioned, if that foundation has never been laid and you want it and, and, and that's what you desire, you want all these things that Peter mentions here, then wherever you're at, 
listening or watching, I'd like to lead you in a prayer to accept Jesus into your heart, into your life. So if that's you, wherever you're at, bow your heads and close your eyes. And just pray this prayer with all sincerity, as if you were, again, you're speaking to God Almighty Himself, the Creator of heaven and earth, the God, again, that holds your life in the palm of His hands, that makes, that is allowing you to breathe right now, is allowing you, your heartbeat, your heartbeat to keep going. Pray this with all your heart to Him. Jesus, I come to you now and admit that I'm a sinner. I have fallen short and ask you now to forgive me. I believe Jesus died, Jesus died on the cross for my sins and confess that he is Lord. Fill me with your love. Fill me with your spirit, Lord. I accept your forgiveness. And I thank you for this new life that you've given me. Thank you for this imperishable seed that you placed within me. So help me now to walk according to your ways, to walk with Jesus all the days of my life. Give me the strength to live in this world and guide me through your word and through the Spirit living in me. Pray this in Jesus' name. Now for all of us here, every believer that's listening, again, I hope this passage encourages you. Hope encourages you to live a life for God. Again, to remind you, these exhortations are for you. The exhortation to hope, the exhortation to holiness, the exhortation to fear God, and the exhortation to love one another. May that be us. May that be you as you go about your daily walk, as you go about your daily business. And I know it's hard. It's difficult. I, I feel it. I know it. You know, and sometimes... I make bad decisions just as much as you make bad decisions, you know. But, man, God is so good to us that he's so wonderful that we can just come to him and say, man, Lord, I, Lord, I blew it. Help me. You know, it's not a matter of staying down. It's getting back up. That's all he wants. That's what he wants is for you to just get up and not stay down, not feel sorry for yourself. He doesn't want that. He wants you to just to, 
He's saying, get up, all right, I, I forgive you, now let's keep going. You know, see what he wants for you. Let's close again with a word of prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for your, these words that you inspired, that you directed Peter to write through the Holy Spirit. These words, again, are encouraging and helps us during difficult times, during trials, temptations. And may we recall these words as we're going through them, Lord. As we're going through, as we go through those dark valleys. And I thank you again for everyone that's here. May they Go out and be shining, a shining light in their communities, in their homes, in their work, in their schools. Protect them, Lord, from the evil one. Protect them from any harm. Pray for their families and their friends. Especially the unsaved ones, Lord. And you use them to speak your word, to plant that seed inside of them, Lord. May that may you just when that seed is implanted, may it grow, Lord. May it grow powerfully. May it grow continually. So that your glory will eventually shine through them. Lord, thank you again. Bless this time. Bless this next time of fellowship. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.